Well, I'm very glad you're here. And uh, today is class one in a 13-week course called Fundamentals of the Faith. It's based on this book. It's put out by John MacArthur's church. Um, and Rick is, this is the teacher's version, but Rick is working on getting uh, student versions of this as well. So hopefully by next week we'll have some of those available for you. So before we get started, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Forever, Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Well, as we come together today to, to study your word and to talk about your word, I pray that you would be present by your Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that you would draw us to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So this is a class about the fundamentals of the faith, and uh, the very first uh, class is Introduction to the Bible. Our key verse is going to be 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the foundational verse, not just for this class, but for the whole course. Holy scripture is the starting point, the theme the substance, and the final word for everything we will discuss in this class. We will seek to allow the scripture to speak for itself. We're going to talk about revelation and inspiration, what it is and what it isn't. I, I almost put what it is and what it ain't, but I thought that was a bit much. <laughs> so what do the words revelation and inspiration mean in general usage? And then specifically, what do they mean when we use them with regard to scripture? Right. So, if we're not talking about the scripture, if you have a revelation, what does that mean? Uh, it means uh, something is clear, uh -huh. or something is understood or known. Uh -huh. How about uh, the word inspiration in general usage? How would we? What does that mean when people say they had an inspiration? Something that gave them pause, purpose, or motivation. Okay. Something that motivated them, mm -hmm. or given purpose. Okay. When we use the words revelation, inspiration, with regard to Scripture, we don't mean less than those things. But we definitely mean more than those things. So, um, before we dive into the definition, uh, the specific definition of revelation, let's, let's list a couple of things that it isn't. First off, it's not a collection of the wisdom of ancient men. Um, it's not a collection of the best of religious thinking. And it's not just a collection of the good musings of godly people. What it is, and this is the key word, the act. Revelation is the act of God whereby he discloses to man what would be otherwise unknown. Whereas inspiration is the process by which God, as the instigator, worked through human prophets without destroying their individual personalities and styles to produce, produce divinely authoritative writings, indeed the very word of God. 
So if we're comparing revelation versus inspiration, we may rightly say then that revelation is the act of divine disclosure to man, whereas inspiration in its various forms is the process or means by which God speaks through men. Those are some important distinctions. We have a couple of different kinds of revelation. First, we'll talk about natural, or sometimes this is called general revelation. And this comes to us through creation and also through the conscience of man. Through creation, the scripture reference there is Romans 1, 18 through 20. If somebody could look that up. And then through conscience, it'll be Romans 2, 14 and 15. Who's got the first one? Okay. And then... Romans 1, 18 through 20. And the second reference was Romans 2, 14 and 15. Yeah, somebody will take that. Go ahead with the first one. Yeah. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay. So we see here that, uh, that no one will be able to stand before God at the last day and say, you never showed me anything about yourself. I don't even know who you were. Paul makes it clear in his writings to the Church of Rome that God has made His presence and His power and His divine nature not only um, where we can see it, but it's clearly perceived from the very beginning of the world. And then who has Romans 2, 14 and 15? When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Right. Okay. So we have a conscience. This is evidence of this is evidence of a God. It's not necessarily complete evidence of the God of the Bible, but it is clearly evidence of a divine power and uh, moral justice in the universe. So, with regard to um, natural revelation, how has God revealed Himself to man? We kind of touched on it already, but. Um, what are, just very simply, how has God shown himself to us? Mm -hmm. So, basically, basically, we're just answering the question that we just talked about. So, it's, he answered, it's through creation and through his law written within our hearts. So, it's just those two points. And then, uh, his creation, what does creation show us about God? We see his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. This is taken straight out of Romans 1. So what is the purpose of natural revelation? To bring in every man Okay. So if natural revelation tells us that there is a God, but it doesn't tell us his name, and it doesn't tell us how to approach him, what's the purpose of natural revelation? Okay. Maybe not directly. It shows quite a bit about God's character Mm -hmm. Sure. So, can we say then it's to cause man to search for a fuller revelation of God? It's, it's a hint. It's an intrigue. It's like, wow, there's really somebody out there. 
I want to know who this is, right? So how does natural or general revelation fall short of giving people enough information to lead directly to salvation? Yeah, natural revelation indeed gives us evidence that God exists, but it doesn't tell us how to be saved. It doesn't tell us how to be separated from our sinfulness and how to be joined to God. In other words, natural revelation is sufficient to condemn us, but not to save us. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. If the universe is so bad, or even half so bad, how on earth did human beings ever come to attribute it to the activity of a wise and good creator? Men are fools, perhaps, but hardly so foolish as that. The direct inference from black to white, from evil flower to virtuous root, from senseless work to a workman infinitely wise, staggers belief. The spectacle of the universe as revealed by experience can never have been the ground of religion. It must always have been something in spite of which religion, acquired from a different source, was held. So Lewis is making the point that... that uh, Yes, general revelation tells us that there is a God, but the leap from that to the gospel is pretty massive, which is why we need special revelation. And thanks be to God, he has revealed himself to us in a book. So special revelation is God revealing himself to man through miracles and signs, dreams and visions, theophanies, which is a big word that just means an appearance of God in a tangible form. Uh, before Christ, who actually came and took on flesh. So God revealed himself in these ways, through the prophets and through the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ, and then through the written words of God in the Bible. There are different kinds of special revelation that we see in the Old Testament. The first most obvious one is a theophany. Um, God appeared in human form, or at least in tangible form, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Moses. Genesis 17:1 When Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him or to Abram and said to him Genesis 26:2 says of Isaac and the Lord appeared to him Genesis 32:30 of Jacob says so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered In Exodus 3:2 speaking of the Moses encounter with the burning bush said and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So a theophany is not necessarily in the form of a person. It is God taking on a form and coming to man in a manner that God knows that he's dealing with God. Second, second type of special revelation would be dreams and visions. Genesis chapter 28, we have the example of Jacob's ladder. Uh, we have the visions that were given to Daniel, to Ezekiel, the different Old Testament prophets. And thirdly, we have the miracles and signs. We look at the great flood in Genesis chapter 7, and which is uh, explained to us prophetically in Hebrews 11, verse 7. Again, the burning bush in Exodus 3 is certainly a miracle. Set a bush on fire and it burns really hot, but it doesn't burn up. The ten plagues, a whole series of miracles we see in Exodus chapter 7 through 13. These are ways God reveals himself even to people that don't want to have him revealed to them. You know, Pharaoh was not eager for this revelation. And then the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. So these are the different ways that God revealed himself in the Old Testament to his people, to the prophets specifically, and then they would record 
um, what they had learned in these encounters with God. And that's how we have much of the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament revelation. The ultimate revelation, of course, is Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, uh, which refers to the different ways we just talked about, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus, as Colossians points out, is the perfect revelation of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And not only did he come in that form, but he also spoke the words of God. And he um, gave the words of God to those that he trained, who then went on to write the, the, uh, the New Testament. The New Testament takes its uh, different forms. In the Gospels, God is speaking through his Son. In the book of Acts, God is speaking through the extension of the proclamation of the message of his Son. In the epistles, God is speaking through the deep and profound understanding of the meaning of the life and ministry of the Son. So in the epistles, we have the, uh, Paul and the other epistle writers basically interpreting for us what Christ did and said uh, in a manner that we can understand and actually apply to our lives. The book of Revelation is a prophetic vision, almost like a throwback to the, uh, to the Old Testament prophets. But it's also a direct revelation of and through Jesus Christ. So John did have a vision, but this was Jesus Christ himself speaking to John. And it was, it was also one of the few places in the Bible where we know that God said, write these words, you know, word for word. And we'll get into some of that a little later as well. Revelation is also a sneak preview of the final and ultimate revelation, where fully sanctified and transformed believers living forever in the joy of the presence of our risen Lord. So when we talk about progressive revelation, <clears throat> that's still a thing. It's still going on. You know, Jesus came and <clears throat> he was the ultimate revelation to date. And yet, um, because of the limitations of our flesh and our sin, uh, we still don't know him as we desire to. Paul said that, you know, we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see him face to face. The sufficiency of special revelation. The special revelation of God through his written word, the Bible, goes beyond natural revelation. The Bible is sufficient to lead one to salvation, but it doesn't reveal everything about God to man, does it? There's lots of things that God chooses not to tell us. We know the Bible is sufficient for salvation. We touched on this early on. Um, here we go again, 2 Timothy chapter 3. From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures don't reveal everything to Christians, only that which God wishes to reveal about himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, we read that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. All oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I'll never forget the day one of my children came to me. Um, she's not present in this room right now. But she came to me and she said, she had this look of wonder on her face. And something had clicked while she was reading her Bible that morning. She came to me and she says, Daddy, I just... I don't know why this just hit me, but I'm kind of freaking out right now because I just realized 
God gave us a book. Like he wrote it down and told us who he is and we like can hold it in our hands and read it as much as we want. That's crazy. You know, and I, and I, and I, I don't ever want to get past that. You know, um, it's so easy for us, especially I think as Reformed folk, we tend to get, you know, deeper and deeper into our theology and we should, we absolutely should. But if our theology doesn't lead us to worship, we're doing it wrong, right? We don't want to lose, we never want to lose the wonder of the blessing of being able to hold this book in our hands. And not just hold our hands, you know, as, as John MacArthur says, we don't want this to be a fetish. And I'm afraid for a lot of Christians it is. You know, they've got the family Bible and, you know, they, they, they have that Bible with them everywhere they go. They carry it to church every Sunday and they might crack it once or twice a week. But it's not, they're not eating it, right? It's not getting down into them. So let's talk about the inspiration of the Bible. So what are some commonly held misconceptions regarding the place of the Bible in the lives of unbelievers as well as some believers? So it's kind of a poorly worded question. I'm happy to say it's not mine. <laughs> what are, so what are some poorly held conceptions, of mis, what are some poorly held misconceptions regarding the place of the Bible in our lives? And these are things that unbelievers might believe, but even some believers might, might believe Yeah, and that may take more than one form. We're going to talk about the Roman Catholic version of that in a few moments, the magisterium, they call it, the tradition of the church. But there are, there are plenty of Protestants who feel that way too. They wouldn't say it that way. But I have a co-worker who accuses me of making the Bible the fourth member, member of the Trinity. And his basic, basic approach is, I'm being a biblicist when what I really need is the Holy Spirit. And that creates a false dichotomy. Um, so those are a couple examples of some false beliefs that people have. Are you going to say something? Well, yeah, I think a lot of the coworkers think it's just like God's manual for having the best life. Right. Uh, it's all gospel. It's all helpful uh, for us to know how to act, which is, is true in some sense, but at the same time, it's, it's only that oftentimes. So, you know, it's right. kind of like Jesus says, you know, he searches the scriptures thinking that they have life in them. It's, it's about being bad. Yeah. There's like a lot of people think it's like a magical book too. I know I, I definitely used to think that mm -hmm. like you know I'd throw open the pages and, and just like put my finger down. Yeah, this is what God wants me to know. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned recently that that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah, it's like so you, you flip you know, you flip one flip one place, Judas went and hang himself, you flip again, go thou and do likewise. What? <laughs> that's probably not the way you want to read the word of God. and choosing what you like. Maybe mm -hmm. you believe like that everything there is from God, but like you kind of just choose the things that you like mm. out of it and like ignore, oh, well, I don't really want to obey that or like, oh, that makes other people feel uncomfortable or yeah. something. Yeah. So while you might, so while you might affirm the word of God's inerrancy and sufficiency, you might actually live like your Thomas Jefferson and be <laughs> snipping out parts of the Bible that you don't like. Yeah. 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 People would go through the Sermon on the Mount and, and Sharpie out everything except for the judge not. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we live in a time. We live in a time when there is no end of denominations and subgroups and people who adhere to one doctrinal affiliation or the other. Um, there really, truly, is nothing more fundamental to what we believe than what we believe about this book, right? And I don't just mean what we say we believe. I mean what we functionally believe, right? So we have lots of folks within the American culture and other places as well, but this is our culture, but you'll run into this all the time. People who say they're Christians, but who will not affirm the inerrancy of the Scripture or just don't even know that's a conversation. They just assume it's not. They, you know, I'm a Christian, yeah. I think Buddhism's a good thing too. You know, I used to work with a guy who told me that he thought a person could be Christian and Buddhist, and he totally meant it. From the Buddhist perspective, you can. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right, that's right. So, yeah, so really, the only consistent religion in our culture right now is postmodernism, right? That's consistent, right? Yes, and that yes. and that it's always inconsistent. That's the, that's its consistency. Yeah. Well, you know, so. Like They, like, use the Bible as, like, a guide to kind of, like... Kind of like Mormons? I don't know what Mormons do. I don't even know what they do, but it's, like... Yeah, it's, like, they read the Proverbs or whatever, like, this is good for my life, but then it's, like, everything that's said, anything that might be negative or whatever, like, nah, well, that's not real. That's... And that's like that's Genesis just isn't literal. Right. Like most of the things that we would say are literal, they're like, no, that's not even. Yeah, you're just basically describing liberal theology. I mean, that's that's the term for it. It's been going on for for a well over well over a hundred years, and it takes many forms. Um, so yeah. So, by by means of review, let's come back to this point. What does inspiration mean again, specifically with regard to scripture? That it's God breathed. Mm-hmm. Right. So, how do we know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? I think that's kind of an important question, right? Mm-hmm. Bonnie Balkanizer was a really good answer to that, and I can't remember what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a collection of historical documents that were put together by witnesses in the generator and in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses explaining historical facts. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was something. So, so you're talking about the historical record, and we're going to touch on that in a minute. But first, let's talk about the fact that the Scripture itself claims to be the Word of God. Now, in truth, it's not the only holy book that claims to be the Word of God. But you can't ignore that bit of evidence, because um, you know there are people who try to say that there's no biblical evidence that Christ claimed to be God, which is not true. So even when you're dealing with unbelievers, it's important. It's important to know what the Scripture has to say about itself. And in fact, in the Bible, frequently the words God and Scripture are used interchangeably. First example would be Galatians 3, verse 8. It says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Well, in Genesis 12, verse 3, we have God saying to Abraham, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Example number two, God speaks in a psalm. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. Here in the New Testament writers quoting the Old Testament, and where Scripture speaks, God speaks. Example number three, Romans nine seventeen. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, 
And clearly in the book of, in, in the Old Testament, Moses records God himself saying these words. So there's an equivalence between God speaking and Scripture speaking. That, and this is not something we're making up. The whole sola scriptura thing, we didn't come up with that. That's embedded in Scripture. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. When God speaks, Scripture speaks. The inspired writers, and the word inspired, I'm putting in air, caps here, or air quotes here, because Scripture never actually refers to its writers as inspired men. Did you know that? It speaks of Scripture itself as being inspired, as we've already seen twice in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that's because the only time these men were ever inspired was at specific times when God gave them his word. No Bible writer was ever inspired in the sense that he could just sit down and write Scripture anytime he wanted. Matter of fact, if you look at the historical record as, as from Scripture, some of these guys, when they weren't in that moment, could be pretty boneheaded. Um, look at Paul having to confront Peter to his face for his hypocrisy. Um, years after Christ went back to heaven. And yet the words of Peter are the very words of God that we have in our Bible. Here's a John MacArthur quote that I really like. The Bible knows nothing technically of inspired men, only of inspired words, of God-breathed words. Not Isaiah, not Isaiah, not David, not Paul, not John, or any other biblical writer was inspired as a person so that he could write any scripture anytime he wanted to. No, there were only very special moments in their lives when they were given directly from God his word to write. And the rest of the time, what they wrote was their own. So men were not inspired, but Scripture is. God breathed into them, and they wrote it down word by word, what God breathed into them. It was more than dictation. They weren't just listening to some voice and writing mechanically every word. It was flowing through their heart and their soul and their mind and their emotions and their experiences. But it came out, every word, the Word of God. As God breathed into them the message, and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, they said it. And some of them wrote it down. It was a miraculous, supernatural, inexplicable process that yields to us the Word of God. There are certain things that Scripture teaches us, such as the Trinitarian nature of God, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And here we have the inspiration of Scripture. There are things that the Bible says, this is how it is, and we're not going to necessarily be able to get our heads around it. And that's okay. That's okay. It's, it's very much okay to accept things that the scripture says and not fully be able to grasp it. Matter of fact, that's the expectation of God, as we see in some of the scriptures we've already read. And sometimes when I'm talking to people who struggle with not being able to understand some of these things, I like to remind them that if, if you could fully understand God, you would be God, right? He's infinite in his glory and his majesty and his understanding. So how is that different, I guess, than like... Like, you know, Mormons would say that John Smith was inspired to write these things. God inspired him to write them. It's different in that this is true and that isn't. I know. I know it is. How would you, like, I don't know, like... So, we're going to get into that. We're we're in the process of answering that question, but the, the simple answer is, I can't convince anyone that scriptures inspired are true. I can't convince anyone that God exists. I can't convince anyone that the God of the Bible is the God of the universe. And we're going to get into some scripture here in just a few minutes that explain that. The Bible writers themselves consistently claim to speak the words of God. Words really matter to God. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul boldly states, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, 
which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Amos says of himself in chapter 7, verse 14, he says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. He's talking to a king. This guy's a herdsman, and a guy that goes out and prunes trees. Literally, it's what the scripture says. And God says, come here, i got a mission for you. I'm going to put my words in your mouth, and you're going to go speak. It's crazy. The Apostle John says in the book of Revelation, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And interestingly, Jesus himself said that he spoke the words his Father gave him. John 14.10. This is the very Lord of the universe we're talking about. Here's another quote from MacArthur, same sermon I really like. It says, the Bible writers themselves claim that what they wrote, God wrote. They didn't write it. It's kind of curious to me that they had a sort of a strange air of infallibility. They said they wrote for God, and they never seemed to be self-conscious about it. I mean, you basically look at the Bible writers, and for the most part, they're unlearned and common men. Yet they're supremely confident that they write the Word of God. In fact, about 4,000 times in the Bible, the writers claim to be writing the Word of God. And they're never self-conscious about it. I mean, you would imagine that somewhere along the way they would say, and this is the Word of God. Now, I know you find that hard to believe that I'm giving the exact Word of God, but you've got to understand this is really true, guys. I mean, I cross my heart and hope to die a stick and needle in my eye. I'm not wolfing you. This is really true. There's none of that. I don't know why you ought to believe this, but I'm telling you this is really the Lord. He told me to tell you this. There's no sense of self-justification, no sense of self-defense. Even though most of them had no extensive education and were in no earthly position to be in a role of a literary genius, particularly, they wrote this profound, far-reaching, supernatural wisdom, prophecies of the future, things to come to pass that were absolutely accurate. They wrote on the nature and character of God. They wrote on God's divine purposes unfolding in the world. They were right about every single thing they said. They all claimed that it came from God, and yet they were never self-conscious about such a claim. It's amazing. The Apostle Paul described the Old Testament law as holy, just, and good. The New Testament confirmed the authority of the Old Testament through approximately 320 direct quotations and about 1,000 inferences. Matter of fact, out of the 39 books in the Old Testament, 31 of them are quoted. Neither is Joshua, which is interesting to me. Um, I was just kind of comparing them last night. Oh, and by the way, how many of you guys have ESV study Bibles? Very many of you? Okay. There are some fantastic resources in the back of this Bible. And I haven't read most of them. But as I was studying, as I was studying for this class, I began to realize, and one of the resources is there, is it literally shows you every single place, book by book, that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. It's pretty cool. And then we have the evidence of the sovereignty of God in preserving his revealed word. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And that certainly includes the word of God. In chapter 40, verse 8, he says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Forever. 
And I, I'm inclined to believe that not only does that mean that all God's promises are true and that they'll always be kept for all of eternity, but I'm also inclined to believe that this book will not lose its value through eternity. Yes, we will have the perfect revelation of God, but just as there are things that the New Testament writers had to reveal to us in the Old Testament which were concealed from our view, there are still things that we don't fully understand in the Bible. Even the best of Bible scholars can't get their head around certain things in the Bible. And I'm absolutely convinced that throughout eternity, as God reveals more and more and more of himself to us, that those promises and truths that are still maybe a little bit concealed from us in that book will redound to the glory of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. That was a glorious thought to me. I, I've always thought of this analogy. I agree with what you're saying. There was that movie. Mm-hmm. I never saw it. It was, uh, the, the, what's the sixth sentence or whatever with Bruce Willis? I couldn't tell you. Yes. All that. And so, I see that, yeah. Yeah, they, they like, he goes, you go through the whole story and then you find out. And, oh, then, and then as you rewatch it, so much stuff is different and yeah. so much stuff makes sense. And I think the Bible will kind of be the same way. Like, mm-hmm. we'll go through it now and it's like, this is awesome. But then looking back on it, Mm-hmm. So much more stuff will be revealed, and mm-hmm. you'll be like, "How did I not get this?" Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you think about you think about just sitting under good biblical exposition. How many times you hear Pastor John or another pastor preaching on something, and you're like, "It was laying, it was laying right in front of me, and I didn't see it," you know? And um, yeah, that's the amazing amazing thing about the Word of God. They talk about the, I've heard a set of the of the Gospel of John that it's simple enough that a child can wade in it. But it's deep enough that the greatest Bible scholar of all time could never plummet's depths. That in and of itself is an evidence of the, uh, the inspiration of Scripture. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 1 Peter 1.25 quotes Isaiah 48. It says, The word of the Lord remains forever. Preservation of Scripture is, is, is evidence. My goodness, when you, when you just, even a cursory glance at world history, at many different um, government leaders that have tried to destroy the Word of God with a resounding lack of success. Um, that ought to put steel in your spine. Um, our king will win. <laughs> you know, we're, we, uh, yeah. So let's talk about the canonization of Scripture, or another way of saying, which came first, the Bible or the church? So, does everybody know what we mean when we talk about canon versus, boom, canon? <laughs> so the word canon uh, comes from the Greek, it's for a rule, 
it's applied to the Bible in two ways. First, in regard to the Bible as a church's standard of faith and practice. And then secondly, which is primarily the way we're using it today, in regard to its contents as the correct collection and list of inspired books. This word was first applied to the identity of the biblical books in the latter part of the 4th century A.D., reflecting the fact that there had recently been a need to settle some Christians' doubts on the matter. Before this, Christians had referred to the Old Testament and New Testament simply as the Holy Scriptures. And they had assumed, rather than made explicit, that they were the correct collections and lists. So let's talk about the Roman Catholic view of the canon of Scripture versus our Protestant view of the canon of Scripture. Um, I think you guys mentioned this a minute ago that some people think we need something in addition. Gail, I think you said that we need something in addition to Scripture. Well, the Catholics would agree with that. Here's a quote from Basic Catholic Catechism. By the magisterium, we mean the teaching office of the church. It consists of the pope and bishops. Christ promised to protect the teaching of the church. They quote Luke 10, He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. He who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, of course, the promise of Christ cannot fail. Hence, when the church presents some doctrine as definitive or final, it comes under this protection. It cannot be an error. In other words, it is infallible. This is true even if the church does not use the solemn ceremony of definition. And this blows my mind. The teaching of the magisterium is the prime God-given means of finding the truth. Not scripture. But the teachings and traditions of the Catholic Church. So in the, in the Catholic view, the scripture derives its authority from the church. In the Protestant view, I would say the biblical view, the church derives her authority from scripture. Here's a quote from Dr. Kim Riddlebarger from a book I have called uh, Roman Catholicism, an article called No Place Like Rome. The church has no authority apart from their prior written word and no authority at all apart from a faithful proclamation of that word. We have no authority in our community or even among our members other than what we find in the word of God. So they can change, like each pope kind of can change what... They have. They have made massive changes and they've all been infallible, which nobody's been able to explain to me. The Protestant view asserts that it is the church's duty to recognize and submit to Scripture. So basically, if, if you could kind of visualize it a little bit, the Roman Catholic view would be almost like you know taking a sword and knighting Scripture, okay, your Scripture. Whereas the biblical view, the Protestant view, would be falling on your face and saying, I recognize that this is the word of God to which I need to submit myself. Very different. So they can, can I choose which pope they like, agree with and say, well, I mean, it was, or they, you know, so this pope has a different set of rules or whatever. Do you have to Well, I don't want to digress too far because we've got a lot more material to cover, but, but there, the Catholic Church is not nearly as monolithic as I thought it was for a long time. Um, specifically, when you get into different regions of the world, um, you know, you have your hardcore Catholics, but you, you, you like Roman Catholicism in America takes a very liberal twist. It's very different. Um, in South America, Central America takes a very uh, charismatic twist. Um, and there are, there are differences. And it is, it is actually really surprising how much of that Rome allows um, within, to a certain point. They allow a lot of dissent and discussion to a certain point, then there are certain places where they just put their foot down. So how do we get the 66 books in our Protestant Bible?
All right. So we could spend weeks and months talking about the canon of Scripture, the actual 66 books and how we got there. We don't have that much time. Um, so what I did was I actually, again, if you have an ESV study Bible, this is taking straight out of an article in the back on page 2,577 called The Canon of Scripture. And all I have done is taken certain portions of that out of there, which we're going to talk about. The Old Testament. In spite of numerous differences between Jew, excuse me, Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders of his time, there is no record of any dispute between them or any later dispute with Jesus' apostles over which Old Testament books were canonical. The Old Testament canon accepted by the early church was identical to the canon of books accepted by the Jewish people. Jesus and the New Testament authors quote the words of the Old Testament approximately 300 times. And there's no question, there's, um, it's a lot easier to establish the canonicity of the Old Testament based on Jewish history and the early acceptance by the New Testament church than it is the New Testament. The New Testament took just a little bit longer to figure out but that's also because there were a lot of books written within a short period of time, and they were scattered all over the place, and it took a long time to kind of get them all pulled together. They didn't have uh, email and fax and mimeographs and all that stuff, so this took quite a while. The prospect of a New Testament scripture to stand alongside the Old Testament was anticipated, even authorized in the Old Testament itself, embedded in the promise of God's ultimate act of redemption through the Messiah and faithfulness to his covenant. Jesus taught his disciples after his resurrection that, quote, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, end quote, predicted not only the Messiah's suffering and resurrection, but also that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus told us this was coming. Prophetic passages in Isaiah and Psalms spoke of a time when the light of God's grace and redemption would be proclaimed to all nations. It naturally follows this proclamation would eventuate a new collection of written scriptures complementing the books of the Old Covenant, both in the pattern of God's redemptive work in the past and for the actual writing ministry of some of Jesus' apostles and their associates. Bringing the saving message to Israel and the nations was a crucial part of the mission of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. He put this mission into effect through chosen apostles whom he commissioned to be his authoritative representatives. Their assignment was to, quote, bring to remembrance through the work of the Spirit his words and works, and to bear witness to Jerusalem and to Jesus and Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In time, the apostolic teaching took the form of books, which we now have as the New Testament. These function as the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, 2 Peter 3.2. Paul and the other apostles wrote the same way they preached, conscious of Jesus' mandate. From the very beginning, the full authority of the apostles and prophets to deliver God's word was recognized, at least by many. As God's word to mankind, the God-breathed scripture is self-attesting, and thus the canon may in some sense be said to be self-establishing. Yet we know for, from history that there were variations in local church practice and disagreements among churches and early theologians about several books of the New Testament. As we already said, that's somewhat to be expected because of how many, you know, more than two dozen books in a period of 50 years and the circumstances they had you know, spread out over long, long distances, circulating unsystematically. The Gospels were the first thing to first to be accepted. They gained universal acceptance while arousing very little controversy within the church. If the latest of these, the Gospel of John, was published near the end of the first century, as most scholars think, it is remarkable that its words are echoed around A.D. 110, 
a decade later, in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch, who also knew Matthew and perhaps Luke. So here we have the last book of the New Testament being written, and ten years later it's already being, it's already being quoted as scripture by some of the church fathers. This did not take 400 years to establish, as the Catholic Church would have you believe. At about the same time, Papias of Hierapolis and Asia Minor received traditions about the origins of Matthew's and Mark's Gospels, and quite probably Luke's and John's. In the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr in Rome reported that the four Gospels, which he calls Memoirs of the Apostles, were being read and exposited in Christian services of worship. They knew it was written. Scripture itself in 2 Peter 3.16, a collection of at least some of Paul's letters was already known and regarded as Scripture and therefore enjoyed canonical endorsement. The New Testament itself gives witness to other books of the New Testament. By the end of the 2nd century, a core collection of New Testament books, 21 of the 27, was generally recognized. The four Gospels, Acts, the 13 Epistles of Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation. Speaking of which, the book of Revelation is a bit of an unusual case because it seems to have been accepted everywhere at first, with very little exception. By the 240s AD, Origen, who resided in Caesarea in Palestine, acknowledged all 27 of the New Testament books, but reported that James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Jude were being disputed by some people. The situation is virtually the same for Eusebius, writing about 60 years later, who also reports that doubts some had about Hebrew and Revelation. Still, his two categories of undisputed and disputed but known to most contain only the 27 and no more. I apologize for this is getting mildly technical, but I, wanna, I think it's important. In the year AD 367, the Alexandrian bishop Athanasius, in his annual Easter letter, gave a list of the New Testament books which comprised, with no reservations, all 27, while naming several others as useful for catechizing, but not as scriptural. And he's referring to what would be known as the, later as the Apocrypha at that point. The apostolic word gave birth to the church. That's a short sentence, but it's important. The apostolic word gave birth to the church. The word of God precedes the very existence of the church. And the written form of this word remains as the permanent documentary expression of God's new covenant. It may be said that only the 27 books of the New Testament manifest themselves as belonging to that original foundational apostolic witness. They have demonstrated themselves to be the word of God to the universal church throughout the generations. Here are the pastures to which Christ's sheep from many folds continually come to hear their shepherd's voice and to follow him. Yes. Um, so they kind of like had like say Matthew would be at a gathering of a lot of Christians and then they'd like send it to another place for a little while and it just like the books would like circulate. And people were making copies. Okay, and right? making copies. That right. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. <clears throat> Which is why one of the evidences, one of the archaeological evidences that we have for the trustworthiness of Scripture because we have tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of fragments of scripture. Mm -hmm. We don't have any of the original autographs, which refer to the actual original document. We don't have any of those. Mm -hmm. But we have all these fragments we can check and cross-check and cross-check and cross-check. And it's interesting because you'll take an individual one and there might be a line missing right out of the middle of it while somebody's made a clerical error. Talking about jots and tittles. Maybe they forgot you know, a mark or something. But, but on that particular point, on that particular verse, we can go pull 150 other documents to figure out that that was a simply a clerical error. Gotcha. Whereas it might go on for verses and verses with no other problems, 
And that same piece might be used to, to corroborate another piece of paper. So that work of, that work of textual criticism has been going on for a very long time and will continue to go on um, as we continue to find things. Think about the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found, what was it, 1970, I think? Um, I yeah, it might have been, at any rate. Yeah, um, and I was so excited to see, I just learned this recently, um, the owners of Hobby Lobby are about to complete the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and it is massive. And it's got tons of exhibits and stuff, and I'm so excited about it. And it's right, literally, you can stand on the top floor and see the Capitol, and it's going to be right there on the list of other things that people come to see when they come to Washington, D.C., Super, super exciting. I have a question about canonization. Yeah. It's something I really struggle with. Um, to recognize that uh, these books were being circulated and, and considered a part of the canon, but I would think just because a group of people recognized it as the Word of God doesn't make it the Word of God. And as you know, there's, there were a lot of people who disagreed, and, you know, sure, some of them came from apostles, but then there's other books like Hebrews we have no idea. Mm -hmm. It's just best guess. So No, it's a little more than guessing. But yes, you're right. It doesn't pass all of the tests that some of the others do pass. So, and I know there's a huge issue with James that people mm -hmm. not, I think uh, Martin Luther did. Martin Luther called it a epistle of straw. So, yeah. what is, or is there anything that actually like gives credit that these are the, the books that God's given us and that there isn't, you know, how do we know that the canon's closed? Mm -hmm. so totally, that's a totally fair question. And the answer is is that, um, let me back up just a little bit. Let me speak specifically to the Martin Luther issue. Martin Luther didn't like James. He didn't like Hebrews. And he didn't like a couple of others. But what's interesting is, you know, he made this blanket statement about James being an epistle of straw. And yet when he completed... When he completed his German Bible, he put them in there. So you have to understand where James was coming from. James was, was or excuse me, where uh, Martin Luther was coming from. Think about your own Christian experience. Depending on your background, when you came to Christ, I guarantee you, you had a pendulum effect. Right? If you came out of the charismatic, extreme background, you might get a little nervous when people talk about the Holy Spirit at work in the church. Right? You might, mm, he can regenerate people that he needs to sit down. Right? Uh, you might... You might react against things. You know, Margaret and I come out of a background of extreme legalism. So it's hard for us to, you know, rules for a long time kind of scared us a little bit. Martin Luther was reacting against the Roman Catholic Church. And he was reacting out of what he had just discovered. He basically discovered the gospel. And so uh, Martin Luther, like everybody else God seems to use, was a deeply flawed person. And he did not see, he did not see salvation by grace alone on the pages of those of those verses. And it scared him, initially at least. But he didn't stay there. And he actually put it in the German Bible. Um, so part of the issue with the canon too is how we as Protestants interact with tradition. The Roman Catholic Church takes tradition and creates the magisterium and they put it above the Bible. We don't want to do that. But neither do we want to ignore tradition. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Aren't you glad that you don't have to get saved and pick up this Bible and read it for yourself, cover to cover, and figure everything out on your own? No commentaries, no preaching, no books, 
nothing. You got to figure it all out. You got to develop an entire systematic theology. You got to figure out how to live. You got to figure all this stuff out for yourself. Thank God we don't have to do that. Now, we live in a wonderful time in terms of how God has revealed himself through Scripture. Um, and we're still learning that all the time as we continue to dig deeper into that word. Well, part of that has to do with the canon. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. We're, these are men, early church fathers, who were not without flaw, of course, but who all recognized the hand of God on these scriptures and in many cases knew the men that had written them. They knew the apostolic witness. They knew the man who wrote the book. They knew that man had been with Christ. So um, there, are certain, there are certain books, such as Hebrews, which took a little longer to sort out. But if you look at the consistent witness of the church of God over the last millennia, it's 66 books. And if you, if you look at, uh, we're, we're not going to dive into the Apocrypha today. We're going to talk about it a little bit next week. But if you look at that, um, even the Catholic Church did not ascribe to it full status of Scripture as we know that they do now until the Reformation. And the reason they did it is because it supported some of their evil practices. So we'll touch on that next week. Um, like that scripture doesn't contradict itself mm -hmm. like for example because like Mormonism was brought up earlier and, you know like why is the Pearl of Great Price something that we don't embrace or like why is Doctrines and Covenants or any of their writings things that we don't believe like there are contradictions they are written by um, a man who wasn't inspired by God and um, there's contradictions between them and the Bible, and even contradictions between like the books themselves. Yeah. And so, um, I don't know. That's something that kind of has been comforting for me too. And thinking about that is that like there's not things that contradict, or when they appear to contradict, then maybe we're misunderstanding mm -hmm. things. But that the Bible is all one accord; it agrees with itself, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah. But then I ended up struggling with a lot of the verses. Uh, there's a lot of verses that do seem to contradict um, directly. I know a lot of stuff, context works it out, but there's um, there's numbers and dates and like battle numbers and stuff that are referenced in the Old Testament between mm -hmm. two different books, mm -hmm. and they're completely different. Um, you need to go back, and I'll give you the link. You need to go back and listen to the sermon. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I've got a printed out. I can give it to you before I leave. Um, the sermon that John MacArthur print, uh, preached that goes along with this, and... This actually brings us to our final section for today. It's called the believability of the Bible. Okay, we've said all these things. Okay, now what? Do I, why should I believe it? That's really what you're asking, right? Okay, why should I believe that? And you might be asking that. You might ask that as an unbeliever. You might ask that as a believer who is just being honest about his own fears and struggles, right? I mean, there's no point in us pretending like these questions aren't there if they are there. What I, what I want you to take away, if you don't take anything else away from this class... You can trust the Word of God. You can. Not because I say so, but because the Word of God has ably defended itself against every foe for three and a half millennia. It can certainly handle a few honest questions from a friend. Right? It has withstood constant attacks from the outside and repeated attempts to disembowel it from the inside. There is no sincere question that the true believer can ask for which the Bible is not sufficient. Now, Having said this, while our faith is not solely based on reason, it is not unreasonable. Knowledge is a crucial element of our faith, but so is submission to a holy God. Corinthians chapter 2 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of God, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you're a believer and you open the word of God, it will find you. It will find you. You cannot hide from it. It will find you. Um, and that, in and of itself, is one of the evidences that we have for trusting Scripture. There are many practical reasons, but the application here is really actually pretty simple. Read the Word of God. Trust the Word of God as the very words of God. Submit to the Word of God in all matters of belief. And obey the word of God. Remember that song, Trust and Obey? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Believe in the author of the Bible. Throw yourself fully into him. Test his very great promises. Over time, your life experiences will serve to you and to others as a resounding testimony to the faithfulness of God and his word. You can trust the word of God. You may not get the answer to every question the minute you ask it. It may take days, weeks, months, even years to sort out certain questions. But over time, you can learn that every question can be answered. Every question may not to your satisfaction, as far as you know, God doesn't always reveal everything about Himself to us. But there are no contradictions in Scripture. Scripture never contradicts itself. But it does make us dig sometimes. I like what what you said. Washer said something um, that, that really it stuck with me for the past couple of years. Um, he asked the question: if if somebody could come to you and lay out in full detail, absolute logical proof that the Bible is false and that God does not exist, absolute proof, would you accept that? And the answer should be no, because God has revealed something that is beyond understanding. He's revealed something to us that we know is true. Yeah. yeah, we don't want to play. We don't want to play board games with people. We could all want to do this, and everybody could say, "Well, God's going to reveal this to your heart. This is the way it is." Okay. The difference is, again, that's not true. This is. And when God, when we open that Word of God as believers, and the Holy Spirit enlightens the eyes of our heart, something supernatural is going on. And if you're a Christian, you may not sense it every time you read the Word of God, but you know what I'm talking about. Where it actually pierces in on you and it finds you. And you're like, <gasps> right? All right, we need to quit. Thank you very much for coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word of your word, for the trustworthiness of your word, for the sufficiency of your word. Lord, help us in this class to embrace your word and to treasure it as we never have before. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.